2: Okay, everybody, welcome to uh, today's episode of Conversations with Jeff. Uh, again, like always, we're, we're pumping out a new episode every day. Uh, it's been a blast, uh, having these shows. Again, new people, uh, coming on, different conversations, different topics. Never really know what's gonna happen, uh, what we're gonna talk about. It always makes these shows fun. Uh, just a reminder as well, um, before we get started, uh, we do have our plugged in, uh, membership. Uh, if you go to gatekeepersonline.com slash plugged in, you can check that out. You'll get, uh, exclusive ac- access to the, re- our, to the recording of our Destroy Social Justice Conference. Uh, as well as the, uh, the first episode of our roundtable show called Connected, which featured, uh, myself, Sam Jones, Dustin Faulkner, and Schumann. That was a free-for-all conversation, uh, wild, wild discussion turned into a debate at the end. Made, made it quite fun. So check that out. GatekeepersOnline.com slash plugged in. If you sign up for the annual membership, you will get a copy of the book, Social Injustice. We'll get, to, we'll get that sent right out to you. Uh, so you guys can go ahead and check that out. Um, excited about today. We're bringing on uh, John Hinton onto the show. Uh, welcome to Conversations for your first time. And uh, glad we could sit down and have a chat.
3: Looking forward to it, Jeff. Thanks for having me on.
2: Of course. And, and you know, the the, th- the interesting thing about you and, you know, when, when I was looking through your bio and, and that sort of thing is you you do have background and experience in both ministry and in the political world. Uh, mm-hmm. which which is an interesting kind of combination because a lot of people it's like they go down one route or the other, so it's kind of nice to talk to somebody that's got a little bit of both
3: <laughs> yeah, you see that you see the good and the bad uh, in both uh, ministry and politics over the last decade for sure
2: yeah yeah, definitely and we'll get, we'll kind of get into that, but I wanted to give you a chance again, first time on the show. I wanted to give you a chance to share your testimony, how God saved you, that sort of thing. It's it's always a great way for people to you know kind of get to know you as as before we kind of launch into some of these topics and stuff. Uh, So I'd love to you know hear your story.
3: Absolutely. Um, I was born in Speedway, Indiana, which is right next to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, in 1982 Uh, to two uh, Christian loving parents. And when I was born, my dad was working at the Union Carbide that was across the street from uh, the Speedway. I lived like two blocks away the first two years. Um, At the age of two, during the farm crisis of the 80s, my dad moved my mom and myself out to the family farm in Iowa, where I grew up uh, for the next 23 years of my life. Um, My dad was a worship leader for 30 years. His dad was a worship leader in a Baptist church for 40 years. Uh, So I grew up going to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Uh, Then when I was 10, prayed a prayer and thought I was saved, uh, but uh, was trying to get brownie points with the uh, pastor whose son was my best friend. I was 12 and I was going to get in trouble with my dad over something I don't remember. And uh, he was going to discipline me with probably one of the last spankings I ever had in my life and uh, said, you know, I'm a sinner. I need saved. Pray to prayer uh, to earn brownie points with my dad. Then I was 16 and was at a youth conference in Des Moines, Iowa uh, over the new year, Um, I think would have been around 1998. And I uh, felt this burning desire within me that I needed to go forward and, and give my life over to Christ. I did, but uh, if you would have looked at my life from the age of 16 to 27, if Jesus says that you know a tree bites fruit, I didn't
0: have much fruit. Um,
3: Uh, I, th- this is how I tell my story, uh, being in uh, uh, ministry and uh, social outreach uh, with places like Samaritan's Purse, with disaster recovery and things like that. I usually tell people, uh, I, I sold tobacco to a minor and had a, uh, had a fifth degree misdemeanor on my record for seven years. I flunked out of the final three classes that I had in college uh, I was addicted to pornography. I uh, enticed women to take off their tops as the track announcer at the uh, local drag strip when I was in college the summer of 2007. I stole from my, I stole and cheated uh, from my roommates that summer. Uh, I uh, got fired from a job that I should have a felony on my record because I checked a phone that was returned out of inventory and sold it on the street for 20 bucks only by the grace of God was I just fired and charges were not pressed Um, uh, I gained 50 pounds in that time got unemployed and I hadn't finished my degree but yet the three years before all this happened uh, a, a rising Uh, youth ministry intern leader in our local church. You know, I was the right-hand man of our youth pastor, helped organize trips for uh, spring break and different get-togethers on campus, was even a part of the campus worship ministry team. Um, But that three-year period of brokenness started when he saw that I was spinning my wheels spiritually. And from 2007 to 2010 is when all those things occurred, and then I was in a Waterloo, Iowa 2010 census parking lot and uh, get a voicemail from my mom. Uh, I didn't want to get mothered, so I let it go to voicemail. And I'll always remember what, the message that she left. It said, uh, John, uh, just wanted to call in and check in on you and... Uh, just wanted to remind you, we know all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. We love you, kiddo. We miss you. We're praying for you. Bye-bye. And when she said, I love you, I lost it. Um, I, in, it was probably 9.30 at night. I was working a second shift at the census, which that office was open 24-7 at the time. And uh, I ran out in mid-July uh, onto some scorching, muggy, Iowa 100 degree heat pavement, fell to my knees and just sobbed like a baby for an hour. And uh, I said to God that the potter, that the clay has no right to tell the potter how to form it, and that uh, however long I have breath on the earth, uh, my life is for him to do with it as he wills. And... Uh, I was able to get back into college supernaturally, have those F's changed to W's a month later, finish on the Dean's list, graduate. But then I was reaping what I sowed um, and couldn't find a job for six months, applied to 500 different places uh, over a span of six months. And then on an act of faith, I just felt the Lord say that I needed to go. And uh, after an F5 tornado hit Joplin, Missouri, which is the seventh deadliest and the costliest tornado in all of American history. I was there for two years to the day that another F5 tornado hit in Moore, Oklahoma. And I was there in Moore, Oklahoma uh, for another year and a half. Then I became a youth pastor for three years until I uh, uh, found my wife on uh, eHarmony. And I moved to New Jersey to marry her and, uh, coming up in June, we'll be married for, uh, two years.
2: Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. It, you know, and what's fascinating too is like, you know, like hear, hearing your story, it's like, you know, and, and I, I guarantee, cause I, you know, again, I hear a lot of this kind of stuff where it's like, you're, when you're going through something, you're like, how in the world is God going to be using this? But then looking back, you see God's hand kind of through your life, even through the difficult times and the down times, but he's using that to bring you back to him and where he wants you. And, you know, it's, it's always interesting how you see God's hand in your life looking back, but not maybe not as much in that specific moment until you get to a certain point, you know?
3: Right. Um, as you're talking, I'm thinking, Uh, David had to kill the lion and the bear before he was ready to slay Goliath. And it sounds cliche, but uh, when it comes to our Christian walk, when it comes to ministry, when it comes to basically any interaction that you have in everyday life, um, the pain that you go through helps you to be able to relate to others who have to endure those same type of trials and circumstances. So uh as a Christian, it allows you especially in this day and time, to offer hope to the hopeless um, where it can't be found as so then you you have a joy that is unceasing but that's because God in he, in his mercy allows you to experience your own utter depravity and brokenness and from that, Brokenness, he remakes you into something that uh, that is his own unique masterpiece, that then can be ministered uh, to and used by God to minister to others.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And again, that's one of those things that, you know, we, we, we see throughout scripture. We see, you know, even when we're hearing other people's like testimonies and things like that, it, that's repeated over and over and over again. And I think that that's an encouraging reminder of even, even when life is difficult, I mean, everybody's going through difficulty and like with what's going on right now with coronavirus and jobs and, you know, fear of, you know, disease and sickness and even death to a certain degree. It's like, God's still working. He's still in control. He's got a reason for this, and we as believers we can trust Him and know, hey, He He's got the ultimate big plan. We may not understand it until we're you know fifteen years down the road and we're looking back. We're like, God, oh, maybe, maybe that's that's what God was doing, you know?
3: Right. Um, case in point, I was telling my wife, what well, we live out here in New Jersey, and we're at a, we're in a uh, stay at home quarantine. Uh, indefinitely now I work for uh, FedEx for the time being and they so I'm an essential worker uh, as a packaging consultant but um, the thing is is that my wife's a hairstylist and she has been without a job for the last two weeks so um, coming into contact with people at work uh, you have a cough they stare at you like are you okay yeah. And I just had to tell people and said, I would never come in here with any known symptoms to try to infect anyone, but I'm also not going to live my life in fear. If it's my time to go, it's my time to go. Um, I don't live my life in fear of cancer or of AIDS or of, uh, the flu or the cold. Uh, this is the same thing. And the thing is, is that Ultimately, that fearlessness comes from the fact that if I live, then it's what Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I live, I get to make babies with my wife, I get to retire in the Outer Banks, I get to minister and serve and disciple and develop other men and their families in ministry, Uh, and I get to work and make money. Uh, But if not, I get to be with Jesus. Either way, that's a win for me. So you're not going to take that from me while you take away my civil liberties, but we'll get to that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, <laughs> well, and, and see what, what's, what's fascinating about that, that there on one hand – and again, it's one of those things where I see both sides uh, of that issue with dealing with like our civil, libra- our civil liberties – in dealing with, you know, we've, I think we've now had two pastors that have been arrested now for for holding church services. Um, it, it, maybe, one was in
3: Florida. Who was the other one? Uh,
2: I just, I literally just saw the headline. I don't remember who the other one was. I Texas. Li- My wife says it was in Texas. My, it might have been. Yeah. And, and so, so I know that there's been two confirmed that have, that have been arrested for, for doing that. And on one hand, it's like you get the argument of they shouldn't be holding services because of the mm-hmm. fact it, it could easily be spread. Um, you know, you know, and, you know, case in point, and I brought this up before, I think it might have even, might have even been in my conversation with Sam Jones was, you know, they were talking about the, uh, the outbreak in New York. And there was the Hasidic Jews where it, it was it was running through their uh, running through their community because they were still gathering together for a synagogue they were still you know you know coming together and it it spread very rapidly in that community so I, I get the thinking but then it comes back to there is this thing called the Constitution that says that we have the right to you know freely freely assemble and so it's it's like where where's the balance, even as believers, of what do we do for safety physically versus what does the government have the right or not have the right to do? Do we disobey the government? It's this weird debate that's going on, I think, within Christianity as a whole of what the heck do we do in something like this?
3: Well, if you read the New York Times article from uh Dr. Russell Moore, the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberties uh, Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention – which I know has been a hot topic with you and Sam and Thomas Littleton and a whole slew of other people across Christian podcast nation. Um, we we, may, we apology- may have
2: we may have mentioned them once or twice. Yeah, yeah.
3: Whether it's <laughs> Apologia Studios or yeah. Cross Politic, Fight, Laugh, Feast, you guys, uh, it just goes on and on and on. And the thing is, is uh, his He basically wrote a New York Times opinion piece basically saying that uh, – calling out people that wanted to save their 401ks and they were willing to sacrifice old people. And I just thought – I've never seen – it I said, first of all, that's demagoguery of the highest realm, and uh, you're slandering the brethren when you say something like that. Um, so that's unbiblical in and of itself. And I don't have a doctorate. I slept at a Holiday Inn Express last night. So I at least know that. Um, but I would also tell Dr. Moore, you've been oddly silent about Kim Davis when she went to jail because she refused to offer a same-sex marriage certificate in Kentucky. You were silent for years about... Uh, you. You didn't release anything about uh, gay marriage being made legal on the steps of the Supreme Court. You haven't said anything about abortion happening in this country. Um, you have, you've really sat on the sidelines while people like David French, who's another supposed Christian for National Review, says that drag queen storytime hour is the price of freedom in America. And these are people that claim the ranks as our brothers and sisters. I can't judge their heart. That's between them and God. All I can do is judge their fruit. And from the outward appearance, it looks mene mene tekel parson, weighed, measured, and found wanting. These look like men like them or like these pastors that bring up uh, false gospel heretics like Kenneth Copeland to rebuke COVID-19 because this was the the Florida pastor that did this
1: Mm
3: -hmm. and rebuke coronavirus. And then uh, these are the same type of people that they they just want to seat at the table. And we saw in the Old Testament that there were people that wanted seats at the table of power with the kings of Israel, and they claimed to be prophets of God. They claimed to walk with the Lord. But They were not men of God. The ones that were men of God were few and far between. They were a remnant, and they were the ones that spoke truth to power. And I don't see a lot of that happening in the evangelical ranks in America. I also don't see a lot of it happening in our political ranks as well. And uh, I think that what we're seeing now is just like what happened After Trump came down the escalator and after uh, gay marriage was made legal, we started to see that, spiritually speaking, the Lord is separating wheat from chaff, sheep from goats in this culture, and there are many that are falling away and turning aside to another gospel— uh, and Paul says that whoever preaches to you another gospel, even if it comes from an angel himself, let him be accursed. And I think that that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing Romans 1 in full display in real time.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, what's fascinating is and – I've, and I've talked about this before too – is there's this parallel between what we're seeing right now with the evangelical leaders and what Jesus was confronting with the Pharisees in his time. And, and think exactly right. And I think, and I think part of part of that is that the the Pharisees were claiming to be orthodox, you know, Jewish, you know, uh, religion, right? And so what they were doing is like like we are the strictest, we are the true, the true conservatives, shall we say? And you know, they were the ones we follow the Bible, we do everything it says. In name, that's what they were doing, and I feel like that's what we're seeing with our current day evangelical leaders, is they all say we're conservative. We're orthodox. I mean, everybody says they're conservative and orthodox if they're evangelical, right? We
3: hold to the inerrancy of scripture. You know, yeah. we hold to the triune God, all that jazz. I mean, yeah.
2: Rob, Rob Bell claims to be orthodox. Brian McLaren claims to be orthodox. I mean I – mean, I mean, Spencer
3: Burke yeah. claims to be orthodox. And if you – the man who ran the TV, not to cut you off but no. to add to this, yeah. I've always wanted to say this. This, that man was a heretic back 15 years ago when he wrote The Heretic's Guide to Eternity, and he questioned the validity of John 14.6 by saying, well, we, uh, Jesus spoke in Aramaic. A lot was lost in translation. It was never recorded, so we don't even know if he said that.
2: What? Yeah. Yep.
3: But go on. Brian no.
2: McLaren. Yeah.
3: Spencer Burke
2: yeah i mean i mean rob bell who believes you can you can get saved after you go to hell i mean like he claims that that's orthodox theology right so all these guys they can say i'm conservative i'm orthodox in the same way that the pharisees said that they hold fast to old testament true scripture and all that kind of stuff but at the same time when push comes to shove you see guys like russell moore tim keller Al Mohler, the usual suspects, Mark Dever, Nine Marks—the the list goes on and on and on of all these guys that are supposedly conservative evangelical leaders, but when push comes to shove, they're sounding more like Bernie Sanders and AOC than they are biblical Christianity. And it's one of those things like, what do we what do we do with that? Because I feel like to a certain degree right now with within conservative Christianity, we're kind of just tolerating it. Nobody's really doing anything about it.
3: That's the million dollar question. I mean, with the rise of technology, you're seeing young men like you and me and others who are uh, trying to uh, bring a new voice to uh, to this conversation table. And people that are in big evangelicalism want nothing to do with it. What I would ask is this. I mean, I grew up in it. I don't know about you, but I grew up in this culture, churched all my whole life. Um, we had 1.4 million men meet in the mall in Washington, D.C. in 1997 with Stand in the Gap and Promise Keepers. Have we seen any fruit from that 23 years later? No. Have we seen any fruit from the Passion Conferences of the last 25 years? Have we seen any fruit from the intervarsity Urbana conferences of the last thirty years, even the last fifty? Have we, if if Billy Graham's crusades across America were so transformative, would uh, then would we have the culture that we have now, just a few years after he departed the earth? And I think that what we've done is we've sipped our coffee. These people have uh, have given us uh, radio shows and podcasts. They've written books. They have been on the Seven Hundred Club and TBN. And the thing is, is that they have been a part of a Christian grift in evangelical America, just like a lot of conservative milk toast Republicans have. In the conservative political ranks, when they say that they're they're for traditional marriage, family values, and pro-life, and yet every two to four years, they continue to sell you out because they don't really care because the check clears. And the irony is, is that that is a reflection of Jesus and the Pharisees because the Pharisees were the ones that they wanted their own seat at the table with Pilate and Herod. And they went to both to get Jesus killed because it was better for one man to die than an entire nation to perish. And the thing is, is that there's not a a market for people that speak the truth because ultimately truth is a double-edged sword. It cuts the other person and it cuts you too so that's why it sets men free but in doing so uh, it causes you the speaker and the hearer pain because sometimes it has to be unvarnished
2: yeah no it, it's 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 very it's very true and and i think that th- i think that to a certain degree we see we see both politicians and religious leaders where they're only willing to pick fights if they can create a market and a demand. I don't think that they, I don't think that a lot of them actually want to fix the problems. They just want to be able to pit themselves against somebody else so that way. And make
3: money off that continual problem.
2: Yeah. I mean, I mean, when you think about it, like you, you saw, you saw that with the Strange Fire conference, you know, pitting the cessationists versus the charismatics in a, in a very extreme way. I mean there was conferences books like even now there's there's conference circuits still you know with all these guys that are still you know pitting that battle against each other right all the while the whole world is imploding and it's like that's the least of my worries um but but then you start think but then you look at politics Republicans and Democrats in all reality I don't think any of them actually wanted to fix the immigration system I don't think any of them actually no. wanted to fix the tax system because as long as they could keep fighting about it they could keep raising money off of it right and so right. that's where I think somebody like Trump comes in and he's like, no, I'll, I'll actually do it. And both sides turn on him because they're like, no, don't do that because you're going to take away our donations. <laughs> like, right. that's what I feel like we're at both in the political world and in the Christian world too. And it's it's really saddening to think about, like, these are the guys that we're supposed to be trusting.
3: Uh, interesting that you would say that. Um, uh, so I don't know if you've heard of a – a national uh, talk radio host by the name of Steve Dace, but it's someone that uh, that D E A C E. Yeah, he's when on when I
2: when, when I spoke at the uh, Standing Against Marxism conference with uh, with Sam, Steve was one of the uh, was one of the main uh, speakers Steve. there. Yeah, he was great. Yeah,
3: he's he's fantastic. I've listened to him for fifteen years. Me and him are uh, personal acquaintances, and um, he's been this way ever since he got saved in two thousand four. Um, a person that uh, he doesn't buy into your tribalism um, he always will speak the truth no matter where it leads but I remember him telling a story that uh, he had heard from former Oklahoma representative to Congress J.C. Watts and it was after uh, the Republicans had won back the House in 1994 and uh Dick Armey, a former congressman, wanted to reward uh, pro-life, pro-family groups by helping to push through some of the things that they had agenda-wise, and J.C. said that uh, those leaders of those groups told Dick, don't, we don't want your help because we can make more money Fundraising by keeping these issues on the table, and uh, that's the grift that I that I see is going on not only politically but also within our churches. Um, and the names that you mentioned were guys that were great influences to me at one time. Albert Moeller, um, I got to speak with him once when I visited. Southern Seminary asked him about the conservative resurgence that he helped lead back in the '90s, uh, and uh, could not have been a nicer man. Looked up to him greatly. Uh, men like Mark Deaver. Uh, what's been disappointing is just the silence of men like Chuck Swindoll or um, John Piper, um, and then be, and then seeing men disqualify themselves from ministry and not have people hold them accountable to stay out of ministry when it comes to like Tully and Chavidin or uh, James McDonald or Mark Driscoll. And then I have to get lectured to by a man that was one of the greatest influences in my life, Matt Chandler, about white guilt and white privilege. Like I'm supposed to feel, and this is what I want to clarify. I, If I'm a Christian, then God has made me in this way as a straight white male for his glory and his good to minister to a lost broken and dying world. I don't take pride in my race. I'm not any sort of white supremacist. I'm not a white nationalist either. Those lies come from the pit of hell. The thing is, is that we're told that there will be, there will be a multitude of which no one can count, of every race, tribe, tongue, people group, nation, that will be worshipping the lamb and bowing the knee before him. And we're told that there's neither Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism over all. And yet we're trying to divide ourselves uh, politically, uh, economically, socially, spiritually, across all realms. But yet the gospel is being lost. The one thing that would unite all of us and would set men free is the one thing that even in the church we're forgetting. And I wonder if God is trying to get our attention to come back to our first love, the Laodicean church in Revelation 2, by taking away the one last false idol that was left in this culture and across the West, which is our money.
2: Yeah, I, I, that, that's a good point. In 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 something that I've often considered and I've kind of posed to people is when's the last time that you heard one of these, uh, one of these prominent pastors actually go out and preach the gospel. I feel like the gospel is missing. Like everywhere you turn, there's a lot of talking about the gospel. There's a lot of, let's say, preaching the gospel to believers, but when's the last time you actually saw somebody go out and actually preach the gospel? I mean, you know, I mean, there's guys, there's guys like, you know, Billy Graham that he went out, but then again, he, he, he also, you know, stated clearly that he believes that there's more than one way to heaven, you know, and that you could, you could be a Muslim, a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Hindu, somebody who doesn't even, even believe in God, but you try to be a better person and then that can be your way into heaven. Like, so, I mean, you know, like, he's not, in my opinion, I wouldn't consider him one of the theologically sound guys if, if you're saying something like that, right? But it's like, When's the last time you actually saw one of these prominent pastors that are up on every single conference circuit actually preach the gospel? It's like the evangelical church is totally missing that. And again, like you're saying, maybe this is like an indictment on the church of, hey, you guys are, you guys stopped preaching the gospel. No wonder the culture is going, going the direction that it's heading right now.
4: I
3: think you wanted to say it's going to hell in a handbasket, which yeah. I mean when we don't know where – Men and women should actually go to the restroom, um, which, ironically enough, in all the coronavirus chaos, we're not hearing about all that that much anymore. Wonder, wonder what happened. It's almost like uh, there's priorities about living and dying around here.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I saw, I saw, I saw. <laughs> uh, I, saw uh, I think it was uh, Dave Rubin on Twitter had said that uh, you know he's like you know it's interesting that nobody's talking about. Uh, all these like, you know, gender equalities and, you know, gender identity and all that kind of stuff. He's like, we all kind of have priorities right now.
3: Right. And when this started happening with, uh, with coronavirus, and I'll get back to your previous point in a minute. um, But when all this started happening, um, I told uh, Sam Jones, who's a personal friend of mine, we've been good friends for a decade, if no one knows that, uh, we actually met on the campus of uh, the University of Northern Iowa back in 2010. Um, but uh, I actually told Sam and some of my good friends, I said, this is going – this is exposing – and this was the first week. I mean we're going back uh, six weeks ago, and I said, what, what this is going to expose is that one uh, – with it. we don't know what to do without our distractions. People don't know what to do without movies, without sports. They don't know uh, what to do by just sitting at home. They have all this free time. and what am I gonna do? I'm bored. I'm like, that's because you were made to work. That's because these distractions are good. Uh, When they're taken in moderation, but you're seeing – I'm seeing people that I used to uh, respect in sports talk radio in Iowa and across the country that you can tell – This wasn't just sports for them. This wasn't just a career. This was their act of worship. They have no other purpose or meaning in their life. They're lost without baseball and basketball. They're lost without talk about football. Uh, And then we find out today, oh, Wimbledon is canceled. Oh, we canceled the Olympics, too. Uh, well, two, it also shows us that life is fragile, and there's a lot of people on this mortal plane that are not ready for their own mortality. Yeah, um, and uh, I think that that's the biggest one because no one, can, no one gave a rip about the cold. Everyone started thinking the same thing. For 100 years after the Spanish flu, that, hey, we have 600,000 a year, 600,000 people annually each year die from the flu. That's just, you know, that's just what happens. Um, you know, we don't give a rip about heart disease and cancer. That just comes with the territory. But coronavirus, we're going to shut down the world's largest economy. And in doing so, Ripple effects the world over and put 3 billion out of 7.7 billion people in lockdown because we're afraid of a virus that originated from bat poop in China. Are you kidding me? Yeah. And three, um, I think it shows that in America, we, we sacrificed our sovereignty and our national security for cheap labor and cheap goods. And those chickens are coming back home to roost,
2: yeah, well and I, and I feel like that that's an interesting uh that's an interesting conversation to have too in in dealing with um are we are you know and there's obviously there's an answer to this because of the way that we've been we've been buying things, but like are we willing to actually spend a little bit more for better quality, but also for something that's actually made here in the United States? you know, I feel like you know we've become this global economy. And we've been importing from China and Vietnam and Korea and all these places because we can pay them almost nothing to make this stuff. But then we become so dependent on their manufacturing Then all of a sudden now if something like this happens and the entire world implodes because we can't rely on China anymore because, because we don't trust them. And so so now it's like maybe... Maybe to a certain degree, Trump's America first thing wasn't such a bad idea that everybody was, you know, criticizing when he was campaigning because it's like maybe we should be relying on ourselves instead of relying on one of these other communist countries like that. And I think that that's something that as believers, maybe we step up and we like, OK, we're, we're going to buy U.S. only. Maybe that's something we we consider. Um,
3: I. Uh, <clears throat> I always say that when it comes to uh, the talking point that people say, oh, well, you know, these undocumented workers, uh, illegal immigrants that are doing the work that Americans won't do, I usually just look at people and say, no, Americans will do those jobs, just not at the price point you're willing to pay for them. Because the dirty little secret is, is that Democrats want cheap votes. And uh, Chamber of Commerce Republicans want cheap labor. So they're, so they're willing to keep the borders open because it suits their own devices. Um, and when it comes to made in America uh, and by U.S. only, well, then that means uh, if, we, if we're coming back to Scripture, there's two things that cry out for justice before a holy God. Genesis 3, the spilt blood of the innocent, when Cain kills Abel. And then in the book of James, Jesus' half-brother, he says, the stolen wages of the worker cry out for justice before a holy God. It is not ethical, moral. It is unchristian and sinful to be a business that uses slave labor for goods, and then you profit off that. That's not an AOC talking point. That's injustice biblically. So if you're if you're paying someone slave labor wages over in China, in order to make your iPhone, and they're getting twenty bucks a day, but Apple sells this for a thousand dollars, that's ultimately something that's going to have to be taken up by God. That's ultimately something that. That does not reflect. It, it it spits into the face of the Imago day, uh, the image of God. And another thing that gets me is if you want to buy American and and it needs to be made in American, then I'm not advocating for a minimum wage, a federally mandated minimum wage. That's completely unbiblical. It's completely socialist. What I am asking for is there needs to be a living wage. Are Americans and uh, and American Christians in particular? That's who we're talking to. Are you willing to spend an additional four to six hundred dollars because your Maytag was made in Columbus, Ohio, rather than in Mexico? Because that means you're going to have to you're going to have to put your money where your mouth is. You're going to have to be willing to spend more in order to have those jobs come back because those are going to have to pay more. So instead of a mandated minimum wage, you're going to need a living wage. And what I look at is, look at Chick-fil-A, look at Hobby Lobby, look at Costco, all three, look at PepsiCo, all even UPS. Now UPS is union, but the other four, they're not union. They pay a living wage to all their employees, part-time, full-time. They're also able to strike the proper balance between dividends for their shareholders and reinvesting into the lives of their workers because they're the ones that do the majority of the living and dying and the working that makes that company go. And if we were to get back to that, then we would be able to see that not only grow in America – but we would also be able to see that exported to the rest of the world but instead we took 1250 an hour call center jobs in the 90s that originated with AT&T out of Waterloo Iowa where I'm close to growing up from and we took those and shipped them overseas to India where we pay those people 550 and they think that they're making a killing we saved 750 dollars an hour, but that's because we want to give it to our stockholders, and, and we don't want to pass that on to driving down the cost of our services to those that buy our product and also increase wages for the workers that are with us. And so we have completely skewed what free market capitalism was meant to be. It's now crony corporatism. And that's why you're seeing a rise in the AOCs and the Bernie Sanders. But when you pass a $2.5 trillion stimulus bill and put people out of work for six weeks, and you're going to give them basically a UBI for the next four months and universal basic income, did Bernie Sanders really need to win the Democrat nomination? Seems like he's won pretty much without taking the oath of office already. <laughs> and,
2: and and got the Republicans to go right along with it. and and that that's that's, yeah. that's the crazy thing. And you know, and wh- one of the interesting things and was when I was watching the Trump press conference today. And I haven't and I and I haven't been following Twitter too much since then, um, but I haven't really seen many people talk about this is there was one reporter asked President Trump about um about the about the border. And, you know, and what's going on with illegal immigration and things like that, because they were saying that there's a lot of uh, of the food manufacturers that are complaining because because they don't have enough workers working out in the fields. You know, and they were talking specifically about the undocumented uh, immigrants. And And the thing is, is that so we're shutting down the borders, right, which then means that the businesses are complaining, oh, we don't have enough people in the fields Well, maybe it's because you're paying them $3 an hour to be out there in the fields because you're not willing to pay somebody minimum wage of, let's say it's $10 an hour in that rural place or whatever it is. And, And, and that, that's the point that nobody's really talking about is that they're complaining because they're, they're wanting to pay half or like a third of what they'd be paying an American to do. I know plenty of college kids that would, that would kill to have one of those kinds of jobs where they're $12 an hour, they go out, Pick berries for you know you know six hours whatever it is. Come back, they get their paycheck. It's easy, mindless, whatever it is. But they're not willing to do it for three dollars an hour.
3: Right, right. And the thing is, too, is the way that I see it is uh, by keeping the keeping the borders open and and allowing uh, people to come over and do that work for uh, very low wages. That I I've heard uh, I've heard stories where I grew up in Wright County, Iowa, of uh, sex trafficking happening in those places. And also, uh, you're paying people under the table below a minimum wage because they don't have papers. They don't have legal status. So you're paying them below a minimum wage. So you smuggle them in the country illegally. You're paying them illegally. And you're allowing them to engage in illegal activity, It's like a triple whammy of unlawfulness and sinfulness. But when you do that, um, it strikes me as strangely ironic because, um, in essence, you're allowing backdoor slavery to continue. It's just under the table. Okay, you don't have people in chains but you're treating them, you're dehumanizing people made in the image of God, and using them for cheap labor, and that should be completely outrageous uh, to Americans, in to Americans in general, and to Christian Americans in particular. No matter what side of the aisle you're on, that just that's completely unbiblical.
2: Yeah, well, and that's and that's one of the things too. It's like when we're talking about a lot of the a lot of these talking points, if, I feel like we as conservatives and we as you know Christians, we're not engaging with the other side in the right ways. We're not bringing up these points. Like when we're talking about uh, when we're talking about like illegal immigration, right? Most of what people talk about is they point to the violence that occurs from gang violence, right? But then the left automatically, they just redirect to, well, there's the poor people that are trying to get away from their third world country and the dictators and all that kind of stuff. When in reality, if we focused on the sex trafficking, if we focused on the issue of slave labor, if we focused on on those more talking points, closing the border is actually better for them than not because of the repercussions of it. And it's better for Americans, too— because you're you're not underselling uh, Americans who would be more than happy to do that job for a living wage,
3: and you're also you're also not incentivizing people to break the law. You're you're rewarding the rule of law. Um, so I think it's a good point to take take the the premise of the opposer of the opposing argument and use it to ask questions that then turn the argument on its head. Like if you were to bring those points to someone who supports AOC or Bernie Sanders and say, but what about sex trafficking? What about low wages? What about dehumanizing activity that takes advantage of people? Are those injustices? Well, you would say yes. Well, then wouldn't it be better to have a, a lawful border that allows people to come in through legal status, legal means, they're not trafficked into the country, they're not trafficking children, and they're able to work at an appropriate level, but then once they're done, they go back home, or they apply for citizenship, but but they're not here illegally, and then they're able to apply for all these different social benefits that were never intended for them to begin with. You know, are are we going to be the world's central bank? Are we going to be the world's employer in America and everybody can come here? Or are we going to ask other countries to empower their own people and ask those people to say, if, there, if your governments are corrupt, if your governments are cheating you, then you have the God-given obligation To bow the knee before him, say we have no king but Jesus, and to rise up and revolt against an unjust government, just like we did. And if you do that, we will support you.
0: On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds, kind of like right now, driving at your desk, maybe at the gym,
1: but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the
3: beach
4: and see a rocket launch or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a
3: launch pad. Plan your adventure today at VisitspaceCoast.com. The HIV epidemic is not over. HIV is still here.
0: The face of HIV is so diverse.
3: The biggest thing to reduce HIV stigma
2: is just to talk about it, testing and prep and HIV treatment and how effective it is today.
4: Undetectable equals untransmittable. Whether you're positive or negative, there's not a wrong door. Whether it's testing or whether it's treatment, do it for you, Montgomery County.
3: Learn more about HIV testing, treatment, and prevention at doitforyoumc.org.
2: Yeah, but 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 at the, at the same time too, I, I I think I think it's a good point to discuss as well of. If we're taking, let's say we're taking the best of the best from all these third world countries, right? You know, somebody wants to be a doctor and so then they come in here and, you know, we keep we keep them here because we need a doctor, right? Or an attorney right. or whatever it is. If we're taking the best of the best from third world countries, then isn't that making their countries worse? Like it, it would be one thing if we're like, okay, let's bring them here. Let's train them for a bit, you know, get them on their feet and then let's, let's get them back in their country so they can make their country better, Not hoarding all the world's resources and bring them here to the United States. And then in the meantime, the rest of the countries are, are getting worse and worse and worse. And I think the other side of, uh, the other side of the conversation too about this kind of more globalist ideology instead of, you know, us focusing on what's best for our country first is that if we weren't doing so much trade with China, if we, if we didn't have so many people traveling back and forth from Asia to here, more than likely, coronavirus wouldn't be a thing or would barely be a thing here in the United States. It's 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 the constant trade. It's the constant travel. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of people that are going into L.A., San Francisco, New York, and Seattle, which happen to be all the hotspots for coronavirus. And Chicago. And Chicago. But they're all fla- – those are the hubs. Are yeah. we surprised that that's where this is happening?
3: No, because they're urban population centers. Uh, they've stacked uh, they've stacked human density up like uh, kindling, human sardines. So then, uh, go back and look at look at the Black Plague, look at the Spanish Flu. Where did those continue to grow? and then just take off like wildfire. It was in places like Paris and London and New York City and San Francisco and Los Angeles. It was places like Beijing, uh, uh, Madrid, Spain, for example. And the thing is, is that nothing's changed. But what's happened is, is that over the last hundred years, we've become less rural and more urbanized because of a a globalized economy, and in the sense we are reaping what we've sown. But uh, to your point about uh, about goods from China, um, I heard a statistic a couple weeks ago: seventy percent of our of all the goods that we consume in America are made in China. Over ninety percent of all the antibiotics. Products that we consume, Their origins are from minerals made in China, and that's that's not just uh, that's not just worrisome. That is a threat to national sovereignty and national security. And I think at the end of this, not just not just America, but the West, the entire industrialized Western world is going to have to have a long discussion about we need to get back to fair trade, we need to get back to manufacturing with allies that will have a certain protocol where we know that there has been certain regulations with things so that we're not bringing in infectious diseases. Like if I have to go if I go into Haiti, I have to get vaccinated. Well, if you're coming from a foreign country into America, why shouldn't you be vaccinated? If I'm required to to, to take uh, vaccinations to go to a foreign country, why aren't you in order to come here? Uh, it, that should be a question that should be asked. Another question that should be asked is, if all the central banks... And I'm just throwing this out because I think that this is what's coming at the end of the year. Uh, I'm going to make a prediction that by the end of the year, you're going to see the EU countries, in uh, along with Australia, the UK, Canada, Mexico, and the United States, they're going to uh, they're going to try and ward off such a global depression that they're going to start forgiving each other's sovereign debt. And in doing so, they're going to try to stimulate the economy through modern monetary theory to get everything back on track. Because if there's one thing that all these governments want and all these corporations want, it's the love of money and the love of consumers to spend that money. But if we're going to have that conversation, then uh, what's – then – What's the trade-off? Because we can't keep going back to China. Uh, I remember growing up, my toys uh, were made in Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, Hong Kong, but all all three of uh, all th- four of those are threatened by the existence of a dictatorial communist regime in Beijing. So, are you just going to look the other way, or are you actually going to stand up and say? We can't allow this to occur anymore because it's now put our own way of life, our own living of ourselves in jeopardy.
2: Yeah. Well, and and I think that as believers and as Christians and as people who you know tend to believe in capitalism, we we in a free economy we are able to make choices. We're able to decide. What company do we want to support? What company do we not want to support? We're not forced by the government to. So what a lot of people do is they'll just go to the store and we'll look, they'll look for whatever's cheapest. As opposed to looking, for, looking, like nobody looks at ingredients. Nobody looks at, for quality. Nobody looks for where was this made. They're just looking at, well, this is about 50 cents cheaper than this one. So I'm going I'm to go with this one, you know, because, because it's cheaper. And I think that maybe what we need to start doing is we need to retrain ourselves and start, start supporting brands and companies that are being ethical they're treating their employees right and they're and they're making stuff here in the us and they're not making stuff in a communist dictatorship and i think that that's right. something that we as christians we should take that on ourselves that's not being a social justice warrior that's being a capitalist that's i'm using my money to buy a good from a company that i know and i trust that's something that i think we need to be doing
3: and i would make the argument that's not being a good capitalist i think that that's being a good steward of your money, yeah. Uh, if you're coming at it from a biblical perspective, because you're trying to not only are you trying to be a good steward in how much you spend, but the quality of the product that you spend your money on and what it supports. So, uh, case in point, me and my wife have two used the 10 year old BMWs, but the reason why we bought those last year was because we got great deals and we were able to get rid of additional car debt so we don't have car payments. But we knew that they were quality vehicles, but they were BMWs that were made in the U.S. They might be 10 years old, but on principle, I'm going to be honest, I know that a Honda or an Acura is a better quality car or a BMW is a better quality car than a car that's made in the United States because... Sadly, um, and this is why Chrysler and GM had to be bailed out, uh, there's a stigma with younger people that those cars are not as good of quality as foreign cars that are made elsewhere. They don't get as good a gas mileage. They don't last as long. um, And I think that that's a reflection of uh, of maybe the fact that they took bailouts, maybe it's also a reflection of uh, of unions that allow people to. I heard stories of working uh, two hours and then breaking for six, and they still get a full paycheck. I don't know. That's that's hearsay from my uncle, so let's take it at that. But um, if you're but. If you're going to be a good capitalist, if you're going to be a good Christian, I think it's being a wise steward of your money. What are you investing your money in? How are you spending your money? But then what is that product supporting? And is it supporting not only a good product at a good price, but also uh, good workers that are being treated ethically?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and like, you know, and and an interesting thing, you know, for within this conversation, too, is that, you know, like, so the way that my wife and I eat very, very clean, mostly organic, if not almost all organic. And oftentimes when it's organic, it's it's made here. And we oftentimes make sure that it is we know, we know, and we trust the brands that we buy from. And it's very intentional in, in, in what we put in our bodies. And part of that, too, is trying to be good stewards of our bodies, because right. If you're buying something from China, they could say it's organic. Do you really know? Pro- probably, probably not. You know, and then and then it starts going into it's a lot of the, the different, like, cookware that you buy. Like, if, if you're buying something from China, a lot of times there's certain chemicals that are in there, and that's going to be cooked into your food. And, you know, it, it just keeps going on and on and on and on. And you're just like, maybe what we need to also start doing is start looking at, being good stewards of our bodies and that also goes into being good stewards of your money it, it's just, just this chain effect of being responsible christians and making the right decisions for what is actually best for us in the same way that we want it, we want to be inputting good solid biblical teaching into our minds and our souls we should be doing the same thing and exemplifying that in the rest of our lives and i think that that's something that is kind of lost and there's this disconnect to a certain degree within a lot of christianity i think
3: I think you're right. Um, in Christianity, our, as you were talking about that, I was thinking um, when you are when you're talking about uh, what you put in your body or what is made uh, of a certain product in a foreign country, then what's that reflecting of? Uh, It's reflecting of something that we take for granted over the last hundred years, but it started with Teddy Roosevelt and it started with certain regulations because there were uh, meatpacking plants that had bugs and all sorts of uh, feces and things back in the 1900s. And then we came up with the USDA. We came up with the FDA. But the thing is, is that I'm not for... Over regulation, but I think that there need that because of the human condition, there needs to be a certain amount of regulation to make sure that what is being sold and consumed is not poisoning or hurting the people that is that are buying and consuming it. At the same time, you can say that about scripture. You can say that about the people that are teaching you scripture. Are you regulating what it is that you're consuming? Because it's one thing to get a sermon from a Chuck Swindoll. It's one thing to get a sermon from a Ravi Zacharias or an R.C. Sproul. It's another thing to consume a sermon from a Joel Osteen or a, a Rob Bell. Or a Doug Paget or a James McDonald uh, so it, because so if we're not so if we want proper regulation in private industry as a Christian so that we have so we know that our goods are safe and to consume and to buy and to share with our family and friends we need to be just as diligent When it comes to what we regulate our minds to see and hear, Um, because uh, Jesus said it best. He said, no student is above his teacher, but when the student is fully trained, he will be just like his teacher. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which is based upon the principles and patterns of this world and upon human tradition rather than on Christ. Just because your pastor says so, just because your favorite author says so, doesn't make it so. Why were the Bereans so praised? Paul praised them because he said, I would teach them something and they would go directly back to Scripture to make sure it was true.
2: that's That's a big deal missing it's missing in the church you know what's what's fascinating it, it, you kind of like what you're talking about this in this parallel is again you know we we're, we're, we're a little weird with food but like literally like we'll go to the grocery store every single thing that we that we buy unless we know, already know what it is we look at the ingredient list we want to know what we're putting mm. in if we don't recognize something we're we're not going to buy it cuz we we want to make sure we're actually buying food not just a bunch of chemical filled filler that's that's the way we are right, right. And, and I feel in, you know, and ever since we've been doing that, no health issues. We've been much healthier. We know exactly what's going in our mm-hmm. bodies. A, there's a lot, right? Then you right. start, then you start talking about that parallel with pastors. And the one thing that I always say is if you're looking for a church and the pastor sounds like he's good, ask, ask your pastor who he reads. That's your ingredients list. Mm. Who, who is influencing that pastor? If you, if you get a list of 10 people and you look at that, and it's, it's pretty good. He, he's got, he's got some pretty good mentors. But, it, mm-hmm. but if you, but if, if you get a list back and it's Mark Driscoll, it's, you know, Al, it's more recent Al Moeller, it's Tim Keller, it's Joel Olstein, it's Rob Bell, it's any of these guys, you're like, you got to remember that's the ingredients of your pastor's theology. And, and that's right. something that I think that we need to take a little bit more seriously of who is your, who are you reading? And also, who is your pastor reading?
3: Right. Um, to go along with that point, whenever I, whenever I've uh, over ten years of various forms of ministry, um, but also political consulting work, you do a lot of work across in those two realms in my neck of the woods with people that are Christians and and conservatives and constitutionalists, and those will cross. And the thing is, is that Whenever I'm in conversations uh, with people in their offices, pastors or um, or political consultants or even uh, political candidates themselves, uh, I always look to see what's on their shelf. Uh, who, who are they reading? Who are their influences? Because those are the ingredients of what you're talking about. Like, for example... Um, I would I would trust someone that is getting public policy advice on how to engage uh, the public square as a Christian, if they're reading someone like a Chuck Colson, than I would someone who's reading a uh, Doctor Russell Moore, um, because and not because of political ideology. Um, and not because of the, not be, not just because of political ideology, not just because of uh, of theology. but if you look at the life of Chuck Colson, he was a man that served the president, went to jail because he was a part of the Watergate scandal and then that's when he found Christ in jail, but he knew. That that wasn't going to mean a hill of beans difference if the rest of his life wasn't completely different. So he founded Prison Fellowship. He founded the Breakpoint Radio uh, Show, which is now the Breakpoint Podcast. And he wrote several books. The best book would be uh, "How Now Shall We Live," which was a takeoff of Francis Schaeffer's uh, great book "How Shall We Live." Um. But the thing is, is that if you look at Russell Moore's life, he worked for a Democrat congressman in the 90s. He then worked at a, a Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And then from that, he took over for Dr. Richard Land with the ERLC. But the thing is, is that when I look at his life, it's a life inside some sort of political and Christian elite Uh, And it's not a life that shows he was trying to make the most of his time, not to get a seat at the table, not to politically grift, but he wanted to serve the least of these. Chuck Colson was a man that reflected Matthew 2540. Dr. Russell Moore, I don't know what he reflects, but I know that... uh, he speaks for many that are now saying on Twitter, like Eric Erickson, that if you're a Christian, you should be ashamed if you're willing to sacrifice your grandma to save your 401k. That type of demagoguery, well, I'll say it again, is that comes straight from the pits of hell. That's slandering the brethren. That is not what Christ would be doing. And it is... It's appalling, appalling, Uh, and when it comes to the ingredients of who you're reading and what you're seeing inside the office of a pastor or a political leader, you can tell a lot about the person by who their influences are. You don't want the flavor of the week. You know, we can go back through the 90s, probably you and me, Jeff, and think of Doritos 3D. Those aren't there anymore. There were Altoid Sours. Those aren't there anymore. There were certain Gushers. They're not there anymore. Uh, There were certain Cereals. They're not there anymore. Uh, Sometimes they come back. Crystal Pepsi, Surge. Others, not so much. New Coke, anyone? But the thing is, is that the tried and true always stand the test of time. Augustine. Um, you, If we're going in the Christian perspective, uh, St. Augustine would be one. Uh, Thomas Aquinas would be another. A.W. Tozer, William Carey, David Livingston, Adoniram Judson, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And, and the thing is, is that these, uh, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, people that two, three, four, seven, eight hundred, a thousand years, everything that the Lord led them to write down and share are truths that were guided by scripture that then have been able to illuminate the scriptures and help to disciple thousands upon thousands, millions of generations over the centuries. You don't know where this new stuff's coming from. You don't know where where its basis is. There may be a hidden agenda that then you're like, "Oh, I wish I would have known that. You have to test the spirits and you have to be wise in what you're consuming.
2: yeah it, it, that that's vitally important and and I it's something that's that's totally missing in modern day Christianity is and I think a lot of it is we've got our favorite pastor we take what they say at face value and then we just run with it and instead of doing a little bit more research you know you know you know look at look at who's come out of fuller seminary a lot of false teachers a lot of bad theology a lot of globalism a lot a lot of interfaith dialogue is coming out of fuller seminary for the most part if somebody's coming out of there I've got some red flags you know, mm. if, 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 you know, there, for example, not to totally throw him totally under the bus because he's, he's done a lot of good work. But somebody like James White, who's participating in interfaith dialogues, you look at where he went to school, he went to Fuller Seminary. It makes sense because Fuller Seminary is also where, where Rick Warren went. They're also huge in the interfaith mm. dialogue scene. You start, you start doing some of that research, you're like, okay, maybe that's where that came from. What is that influence on the guy? That doesn't, that doesn't ruin everything else about him. But that one theology, it makes right. sense that he would believe in that because of where he, where he came out of. And I think that that's where it's like, we need to start doing a little bit more research, see who's influencing them. Look at somebody like John Piper, huge into Christian hedonism. And he, he cites Ayn Rand as one of his major influences, who was very anti-God, uh anti-Christian. Mm. It's, it's those things. Look at who are influencing your favorite pastor and then be aware of that, right. so that way maybe they're saying something. If it sounds off, it might be off. And I think that that's something that we as believers need to really uh, take seriously.
3: I think it. I think it is asking the Holy Spirit for discernment, um, and uh, and also uh, asking for mercy because none of us are none of us are one hundred percent right as much as we want to think. I mean, where, I would ask you, where's the balance between what you just said? Because uh, I, I, I'm curious, where's the balance between uh, between John Piper citing Ayn Rand and an interfaith dialogue? Because as you were talking, I'm thinking, well, J.D. Greer just talked a couple of weeks ago with a Muslim imam. But the thing is, is that we see that uh, that Jesus spoke to the false uh, he spoke to the political leaders of his day but he also spoke to the false religious leaders of his day but then we also see that Paul goes to the Acropolis and he says I'm all things to all men in order that I might save some now you can tell by. by, let me preface this by saying I'm not advocating that all roads lead to one truth you can have a dialogue, but it, but that means that you're saying, I am not backing away from the propitiation of Christ, from the inerrancy of Scripture, from the fact that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and that I ultimately believe that you are following a false teaching. But if someone... But if I thought that... It, But if you thought that I was going to go to eternal torment, I hope that you would care enough about me to have an interfaith dialogue to say, hey, I think you're going the wrong path. Can I give you an argument to show a better way? I think that's what Paul did. I think that that's what Jesus did. I think that that's what the scripture commands. But where's the balance in your view between the interfaith dialogue of a James White and a J.D. Greer between what we see in the scriptures with Jesus and with Paul and with Peter and John?
2: Yeah. Well, I you know, I think from my take, it, it comes down to what is the premise of your dialogue, right? Right. So so when James White is standing up there with Yasser Kadi on stage and, he, and he, he, in his own words, he states, here's the premise of the event the premise is we're going to compare not not only the differences between islam and christianity but the similarities as well and then they and then they start talking about a lot of the a lot of these similarities in our theologies that we have that's a red flag Now, if you were yeah. on now, if you were on stage and was more of a debate, wouldn't have a problem. He's, he's done dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of debates. All for it. Go for it. Right. I wouldn't even be necessarily opposed to uh like if like, and I've told several of my friends, and so I'll put I'll put it out here on the podcast. I would invite anybody pretty much onto my show. I I would interview anybody. I'd have a conversation with anybody, Christian, non-Christian. I've had a few non-Christians on. I got a lot of flack for having uh, Michael Brown on and we we literally spent an hour of me saying I believe you're wrong on this charismatic theology like I don't believe that Bethel Church had uh, had God's glory and a glory cloud falling from the sky that you know and I, and I I I put it I I put it to him right and and gave him the chance to explain I still totally disagree with the guy cuz he's just like well who are you to say that it couldn't be God's glory and I'm like come on it's it, it's a guy, you know, putting pixie dust in the uh, in the air conditioning vent. Um, but <laughs> but when, when it comes when it comes down to it, it comes down to the premise of the event. It comes down to how you're conducting yourself. Right? Are you looking to quote unquote build a bridge by finding commonalities and similarities between a false religion and biblical Christianity? Or are you taking what I believe Jesus did, and he said, this is totally wrong that the Pharisees are teaching. What they're doing is totally wrong. It's leading people to the pits of hell. Here's biblical truth. He, he made that distinction. He, in, in public, before ever, before the nation of Israel, he exposed the Pharisees in almost every single public sermon that he gave. And, and he showed just how hypocritical they are, that their, that their theology was bad, he went down the list, and, he, and what he did is he pit them against biblical truth. A lot of these interfaith dialogues aren't doing that, and th- I think that that's the problem with that.
3: Do you think that these interfaith dialogues, the, this rabbit trail we've went down, that the thing that we're doing is we're now muddying the waters and we're trying to be nicer than Jesus with khaki pants on? Pr- pretty much. Because I, that's what it so- – because what you're saying, that's what it sounds like to me because uh, you look at Jesus and he always called out the – he always called out the religious leaders of his day that were hypocrites and he did it in very blunt terms whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones a brood of vipers no you have another father you're your your sons of satan uh but the thing is is that that was different than how he treated the uh, the crowd after he fed the five loaves and the two fish he still preached Uh, he still preached the Beatitudes and he still preached parables but the thing is is that then there was a falling away because people didn't understand what they were saying they were just there for the bread and circuses they were there for the show Mm -hmm. but then there was also a different way in how Jesus reacted and interacted with his true followers sending out the 70 sending out seeing the 500 after his resurrection um, and how he treated and held to account his own 12 disciples and it's almost like those four different ways of how he treated people are a reflection of the four seeds if you if you've never seen the parallel mm-hmm. you know there's there's uh, the seed in uh, that's caught up in the thistles and thorns of the world there's the seeds that fall on dry ground and they're eaten up by the birds of the air then there are seeds that shoot up quick and they grow, but then they die. And then there are seeds that find dry ground. They find, they find good soil. And those are the ones that, that are watered and nurtured and flourish and take root. And the thing is, is that um, you see that in how he interacted with people. But uh, So he was all things to all men, but he didn't muddy the waters by saying, well, you know, you believe this part of the Jewish God. I'm here to show you that, the, that you've got it a little right and a little wrong. It was more so, I'm right, you're wrong, here's why. But there is hope, and here's why. But are we muddying the waters? I'll, I'll ask this you. Are we muddying the waters by having these type of interfaith dialogues by trying to be nicer than Jesus with khaki pants on? Because I think that that's what we're doing.
2: Yeah. No, I, I, I 100% agree with you. And I think that a lot of what we're seeing with the interfaith dialogues, with social justice, with the infiltration of the left coming into Christianity, what's ended up happening, and I think a lot of that is based on uh, bad eschatology as well. Is that what what a lot of the church is trying to do is establish God's kingdom here on earth, un, with the understanding that we're ushering in uh, Christ's kingdom, right? And so I think what I think what's happening is we're trying to right all these wrongs, Christianize the world ne- necessarily, which means really muddying everything down and just making everybody get along and peaceful and whatever it is, with the understanding that. We're doing this in trying to establish Christ's kingdom here on earth and that means getting rid of borders, getting rid of oppression, getting rid of you know you know uh, income inequality that means you know finding the commonalities between different religions and all that kind of stuff and I think what's ended up happening is in their mind they're trying to usher in God's kingdom they're trying to usher in the millennial reign of Christ coming back but what they're really doing, unbeknownst to them hopefully, is they're ushering in the rule of the Antichrist? That's really what's happening. Yeah. Because if you get rid of borders, wait a second, one world government, you 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 alleviate income inequality, one world currency, you find you find the commonalities in all the religions, one world religion. Isn't that what isn't that what Revelation talks about? And it's Christians, it's Christians that are that are leading the way to this. And it's like they're being led astray by the leftists, by the people that are actually trying to get this to happen. And it's like we're just buying it, hook, line, and sinker. And I think that that's why there's so much uproar over this is from the few people that are actually trying to cause a ruckus. Is it's like, do you guys not see the direction that this is? Did you, do you guys not read the book of Revelation?
3: Well, I mean, I cited it before Colossians two eight, see to it that no one takes you captive, and you're seeing that a lot of people, and that's so that is Paul writing a warning to the church at Coloss the the book of Colossians is teaching the church at Coloss what they should and should not do and that verse is a warning saying you can be taken captive watch out and sadly we're not we're not being attentive To what it is that we're consuming, we're not being discerning with the ingredients we're putting into our mind and what we're listening to. And now we're seeing people that we used to have uh, a lot of respect for and a lot of admiration for. We're seeing, wait, we're finding out sadly That you either die the hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Thank you, Dark Knight. Yeah. uh, Harvey Dent. And uh, when it comes to these things, sadly, uh, in scripture, you see the same thing. Except for John, you don't see a lot of men that finish their race well. John was 90 on the Isle of Patmos after he was boiled alive, and then Paul in front of Nero. The rest of them, they were all young in their 40s or 50s, and they were all killed in different ways, the disciples. Look at Moses. He didn't finish his race well. He got struck down because he disobeyed God. David nearly had the kingdom ripped away from him after Bathsheba. Solomon 700 wives and 300 concubines after he built his dad's temple. Shall I go on? And what we're seeing is we're seeing this play out in real time. That's my number one prayer, uh, is, um, is that, Lord, help me not to disqualify myself from the race that I've run. Help me to be able to run it as well as I can through your power, your might, Your spirit alone To run it as well And as strong as I can Unceasingly And uncompromisingly As I can Until that final day That I draw my final breath Because that I think Is what victory is going to look like Victory in Christian America And in the West For the Christian Is is not going to look now Like it did before It's not going to be political power it's not going to be social influence. It's going to be, Did, did you st- like the writer of Hebrews says, did you stand boldly without wavering upon the hope that we confess because he who promised is faithful. It's what Paul says when he says, stand firm, be men of courage, do everything in love, but continue to stand firm. When the day of trouble comes, that is what ultimate faith and finishing and living well in this digital Babylon, in a, a part of this new exile for Christians in the West, is going to look like. And I think that that is the message that we're not hearing from the likes of all the men that we've listed while we've been talking.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and, and and I think that, you know, a, as we're wrapping up too because I know we've gone like half an hour longer than I usually go. But uh, but <laughs> Well, that means it was a good conversation. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But 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 I think that that needs that needs to be all of our prayers. And that needs to be our focus. And and really what it's coming down to, I feel like within Christianity is are you going to be faithful or are you going to compromise? That that's real it's it's really that's the decision that that I feel like it's coming to especially with a lot of the pastors and a lot of the, you know, uh visible leaders is, are you going to compromise? It, it It's it's not that difficult in the sense of, God lays out, here's biblical truth. I feel like all these guys know what the truth is, but they're making a decision of compromise for whatever reason that is. And so I think that we need to remember going forward, stay true to God's word, don't compromise, even if you miss out on speaking at a conference, even if you miss out on you know getting elevated to being an el- an elder or a deacon in your church because maybe they're they're compromised and you're not whatever it is it's like there's going to be trials there's going to be difficulties but it's going to come down to are you going to be faithful or are you going to compromise it's it's a one two decision that I think that we as Christians moving forward as the church we need to figure out are we going to stay faithful or are we going to compromise for whatever reason that might be
3: uh, to wrap up. Um, I think what you're seeing now, and I think that this is part of what's happening uh, with uh, the coronavirus that's happening acro- uh, across the globe, I think it, it, I think it's a setup for the sprint towards uh, the end of days. But I don't think we're there yet. I think we're probably in Revelation 6, if I was to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Um, what I think we need to remember is that, uh, as we wrap up, that we serve a great God that uh, that asks us to be accountable for ourselves, not to put our faith in the tongues of men and of angels of, you know, the John Pipers, the Mark Driscoll's of the world, even people that we, that we admire and that we listen to, uh, do not raise those above the standard of scripture, above the teachings of Jesus, above, uh, above asking for godly wisdom and Holy spirit led discernment to be able to test the spirits in this age. Um, it has, you were talking uh, earlier about uh, that there's a there's a compromise in the in the church that we're having to deal with, and what is God calling us to? And I said that we needed to be uh, faithful no matter what, and I think that what we're seeing now is setting up for that. I think that's where I was trying to get to. The coronavirus is a, I think it's a pruning globally of the church, of certain economic sectors, of certain socioeconomic ties. And the thing is, is that a pruning brings about new growth, more growth, better growth. But it doesn't mean that there isn't hardship in the short term, that there isn't pain. In the short term. And right now, the men and women of God across the globe have a great opportunity to be able to be the hands and feet of Jesus and give hope to a lost and dying world that is in desperate need of it. They're not ready to meet their Maker, they are not ready for uh, sickness or pestilence to come. They don't have peace. And that should be our charge that we are the ambassadors of Christ, holding open to them the words of eternal life. And if we take that mantle, I think not only will you see these false teachers and false followers fall away, but you're going to see people that were a part of the church and come back, that have renewed vigor, but you're going to see sheep that weren't of the fold. That will come because people were actually doing what we should have been doing all along. And I think that uh, this is a great time to be alive because the opportunity is there. You can sense it. You just have to ask the Lord, Lord, you're at work. You're asking me, you're inviting me in to play. Where do you want me? What position do you want me to be put in the game and then let me do it to the best of my ability?
2: Yeah, and I think that's that's the perfect way to end the show too, because I feel like that that's that ultimately sums up. Like this needs to be our focus. This needs to be how we move forward as Christians, as the church, um, and uh, and make sure that again we're we're staying faithful. Like that's really what this comes down to. Stay faithful no matter what. Even if your pastor is going astray, even if your favorite celebrity pastor that you love all of his books and he's been very influential in your life, if he says something wrong don't follow him like it's it, it's not that difficult even though a lot of times we have that emotional attachment so i think i think that that's really really important to uh, to remember so but yeah i re- i really enjoy you know having you on you know it was fascinating you know especially seeing the direction that the conversation took and and uh it's 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 always fun and uh yeah i really enjoyed having you on i really appreciate it
3: Thanks, Jeff. It was awesome.
2: Yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll definitely, look
3: forward to doing it again.
2: Exactly. We'll have to do it again at for sure. So, and then, uh, and then for everybody as well, uh, what's the best way for them to be uh, following you on social and all that kind of stuff if they want to keep up on anything else that you're talking about?
3: Uh, you can hear all my unedited thoughts on at uh, jhinton underscore. That's h i n t o n at jhinton underscore on Twitter
2: perfect sounds good follow, follow him on twitter and then uh for everybody as well we're going to be back tomorrow with a special edition of conversations with jeff uh not going to have a guest is i'm going to be my own guest and you guys are going to ask the questions so you guys can tune in tomorrow I, I believe we're going live at 11 o'clock and you guys can submit any questions and i'll just answer it live and you know we'll, we'll see we'll see how that goes so tune in tomorrow uh conversations with jeff uh bring your questions challenge whatever it is when we'll, we'll have some fun and then uh yeah we shall see you guys then.